2: hello snowflakes welcome back to the new european podcast with me steve anglesey i'm the editor of the new european if you enjoy what we do at tne there's really no better way to support it than by subscribing and to make that decision easier here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just a pound a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to our print and digital package for two pounds a week. For that, you get unlimited digital access, plus our award-winning newspaper is delivered to your door every week for a year to take advantage of this brilliant, exclusive offer and to join our growing community of avid readers, please subscribe at the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. That's the neweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, coming up, the autumn statement is here, and uh, it might have been written by Ingmar Bergman and Ian Curtis rather than by Jeremy Hunt. Uh, here we are. We used to be in an age of world-beating Brexit uh British boosterism. Uh, Now we have been, uh, we are living in an era of Scandi-noir blackness. And to discuss that and why the autumn statement might not have been as bad as first feared, uh, we'll be joined by the author and new European columnist, Paul Mason. And later we will be putting more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers, poisonous pundits into a hall of shame. Uh, And to help me do that, I am joined by my new European colleagues, Let's start before we talk about the uh, the autumn statement, and and indeed before we talk about British politics. This week's front page of the New European, its issue three one seven, is, is very powerful. It's a close up image of a, a young boy called Niraj Romba. Uh, his father died three years ago. He was only twenty four. He was working as a scaffolder uh, in extreme heat, building a, a World Cup stadium in, in Qatar. Um, inside the issue, we've got a fantastic piece by Rob Hughes, our football writer. It sums up what a lot of us think about this tournament. Uh, Matt, I mean, you're a football fan. What, what, what? what is, how are you feeling? How are you feeling about this World Cup? It starts on Sunday. I, I can't get a grip on it at all. I can't get into it.
3: Yeah, yeah. Like I suspect a lot of people listen, I feel left cold by this World Cup. Um, and I say that as an otherwise quite cynical football fan and usually still feels a certain romance about the World Cup. Yes. Even as uh, over the years, FIFA has been determined to turn it into a bloated advertisement for credit card and soft drink companies, diluting the quality by increasing the number of teams. It's still the tournament of Pele and Cruyff and Maradona and Pickles the Dog and Diana Ross's Missed Penalty. Um, but this one, yeah, I think like you, I just feel apathetic about, uh, even aside from the fact that Qatar is a brutal theocratic police state with a medieval attitude to gay rights. There's so much else to loathe about the World Cup taking place there. And you know, just a week after COP27, a World Cup's taking place in a country which has built seven new stadiums for it. Who's going to play there after next month? Nobody knows. It's built 105 new hotels in the past 16 months. Who's going to stay there after this year? Nobody knows. We're basically holding a World Cup on an oil rig with no history in or culture of the game in winter, in the middle of most countries' domestic seasons, and all because a small group of very rich men wanted to become even richer. And I concede I might very well get sucked in from the very first game, although, helpfully, the draw has made it Qatar versus Ecuador, which is whatever the opposite of mouth-watering is. I think this World Cup is just one to get through, and then we can look forward to the Euros in Germany in 18 months' time, which is a proper football tournament in a proper football country.
2: Yes. I mean, Ellie, this week in the New European, we've, we've outlined protests happening all across Europe against this tainted tournament. I mean you know in 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 places where it's it's the weather is hosp, uh, hospitable enough to have large screens you know places in France and uh Paris Barcelona as as well of uh, outlawed fan zones and and large screens what what do you think it's going to I mean you live in in London what do you how do you think it's going to go down in London and, and in Wales where obviously they've been waiting for you know 70 years to to go back to a world cup final
1: mm. well i was going to caveat this by saying at first, I am by no means, as you hinted at, a football expert. The way I see football is, you know, the equivalent. I think Nick Grimshaw said on a podcast recently with the chef Angela Hana. I like social football. The what Matt you were hinting at, sort of romance of it all, everyone coming together, the rallying behind it, the ability to sort of chat to anyone about what's what's going on. Not that I often do know what's going on, but I, you know, give it a good pretend. So that's that's the real question: is that actually that same spirit isn't really here this year? Um, you know, as Matt, you've been saying, we've been asked by the FIFA president to basically just focus on football and turn a blind eye to everything else that's been going on, the things with the huge human cost of building the stadiums, the fact that, you know, Qatar's one of, if not the most awful places to live in if you're gay or part of the LGBTQ community. Um, so naturally it's quite hard to just focus on the football as uh, as Nigel Warburton's written this week. Um, And as our cover shows, as you mentioned, Steve. So I don't know if you guys saw this week or at the end of last week, even what Joe Lycett did. It's sort of a bit, Mm. yeah, it was weird. It was a bit black mirror esque sort of a, what was essentially an ultimatum. He gave David Beckham this ultimatum where he said, you know, I've always considered you a gay icon. You know, you married a spice girl, which apparently is the gayest thing someone can do. Um, But he has now signed a £10 million deal with Qatar to be their ambassador during, you know, while this World Cup is going on, where, as I mentioned, it's considered to be and voted one of the worst places to to live in and reside in if you're gay. So now he's clearly gone down in the comedian's estimation. Um, The comedian said, you know, he asked him to cut ties with Qatar and this relationship. And if he does, he'll donate 10 grand of his own personal money to charities that support queer people in football. So a grand for every million. He has until midday Sunday to do so, or it's apparently getting shredded um, live on this on this website he's set up called Benders Like Beckham. So if that's you know even a percentage of that mood is matched across the country once this this starts, then it's going to be interesting to say the least. Um, And yeah, like Matt said, nowhere near anything like the romance of a World Cup or the joy or the anticipation or the community spirit that we see coming together. And in fact, it could. Potentially rightly so, all go end up going very nastily indeed.
2: Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm it, it bewilders me. I'm usually fascinated, gripped by the world cup, and, and have been, uh, uh, you know, since I was a, a, a very, very small kid. And, uh, I, I, it, I don't know, just the, the thought I'm trying to, I'm now trying to plan nights out in, in places where I know that the football won't be on. Uh, which is an extraordinary thing. Um, talking of other grim prospects, obviously, you know, what another one, another grim prospect is the next few years for the British economy. And it's fair to say that we weren't expecting an afternoon of knockabout fun from Jeremy Hunt, um, but it was pretty bleak. Um, and, and it, uh, you know, we had the, we had the autumn statement. Then we, we discovered the, the treasury's verdict that after the statement, half of, British households, more than half a British household will be worse off uh, next year. That's not something that usually you usually hear from the Treasury after a budget or a statement. Statement, we got the OBR's forecast: real household disposable income per person is going to fall by more than seven percent over the last uh, the next two years. Rather, that's the biggest fall on record. Uh, we have the biggest tax take for 80 years, uh, borrowing is going up. I, I mean, I really want to get into all of this with Paul Mason, obviously, who is a kind of, you know, an economist of the, of the left. Um, but Ellie, first of all, what, what were your thoughts on, on what Jeremy Hunt said and didn't say?
1: Well, it's certainly, it's already been nicknamed a memorial service for trussonomics. Um, and the fact that so-called the so-called truss era now feels a million, million miles away, in one aspect, shows just how fast politics does move nowadays. Um, I think it was described as the same sort of tone in which a bank manager would come up and stand up and give some very, very bad news indeed to the rest of the members of of the workforce of the bank, which seemed quite apt. And like you say, we all knew it was going to be grim. We all knew it was going to be short of a lot of pre-festive cheer. Um, He stood up and said, off the offset, that his priorities were stability, growth and public services. I know that's four words, but the Conservatives seem to have a thing for doing things in three words, um, which is, you know, I don't know whether that's an avoidance tactic. But anyway, to me, it seemed clear that he was adamant that the legacy of of the Tories, you know, this government and, and previous Tory governments, unlike what happened to Labour during the last financial crisis, was that at all costs, this Tory government wasn't going to be saddled with and blamed with the cost of living crisis and so that you know anything to be get rid of that legacy um I think I'd also quite like to have some of what Hunt is having or whatever he's you know to use the colonial uh colloquial expression sorry you know whatever he's smoking because well he made these claims that we were still you know a science and research um superpower that we always have been and this sort of thing which is interesting because I feel like Brexit has threatened the UK's role in this. And as a global research leader, there was the 100 grants from the um, prestigious 95.5 billion Horizon Europe funding programme. Well, they were terminated. And then he ended with the claim that there may be a recession made in Russia, but there's a recovery being made in Britain, to which there was huge cries of outrage. Um, I think essentially just using sheer blind optimism to drive us through this economic mess that we're now facing. And I'm not entirely sure that either sheer blind optimism or the, the measures that were you know outlined today can really do it.
2: Uh, and Matt, what did you, uh, what, what did you take from the autumn statement apart from, I mean, the, the necessity to take Valium afterwards? <laughs>
3: yeah, no, it was, it was incredibly, incredibly grim. Uh, I'm not, an economist, I will happily defer to Paul Mason on breaking down the figures, other than to say there's nothing announced today which is likely to stop people feeling worse off as inflation spirals. Um, Just on the politics, I absolutely agree with um, Ellie. Jeremy Hunt felt very much like a man uh, making clear that the Trust Quarteng Interregnum was exactly that, and this was a a budget an earlier generation of conservative pragmatists would recognize the problem he's got is an awful lot of the cohorts that behind him are not conservative pragmatists. Yes, uh, that's great. The products of Brexit, Tufton Street, and the, and the culture wars. Then they they you know an awful lot of them. They still believe in trickle-down economics. They don't believe the rich should be paid more and they oppose windfall taxes on energy companies as socialists, as, socialist, as indeed did Hunt until. Fairly uh, recently. I don't think Sunak and Hunt will struggle to get it through the Commons, but I think it'll sit uneasily with a lot of Conservatives, as it will, I suspect, with tomorrow's Daily Telegraph, which is not unimportant. Um, one very slight thing before we move on I note that Hunt used a statement to announce a new position of Mayor of Suffolk. If only there was a current Suffolk MP who might find himself with a lot of time on his hands soon.
2: Well, that's yes, maybe that's right. Yes, there's a there's a uh, there's a definitely position opening up. Um, I mean, talking of Suffolk MPs, I I did want to I did want to move on because, um, because you know, let's let's talk about developments in two places where the inmates are being. Put through a set of cruel trials and one of them was obviously the brexit britain the, the great brexit experiment and the other one is the celebrity jungle where matt hancock uh who is a Suffolk mp is 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 uh has got all the ostrich anus that he can eat. um let's start with matt hancock then ellie because uh, you know we, we last week we, we did quite a bit about matt hancock um And we were wondering whether Matt Hancock, being in I'm a Celebrity, had broken I'm a Celebrity in a certain way. And this week, people are saying that I'm a Celebrity might have made Matt Hancock. He he might be getting on track to be be forgiven. And certainly when you look at sort of right wing um, uh, Facebook groups um, um, and stuff like that, people seem to you know people seem to be loving Matt Hancock so certain people seem to be loving Matt Hancock anyway what what on earth is I've stopped watching it but what on earth has been going on
1: well I don't know Matt Hancock might not have broken I'm a celebrity but it might have broken me I mean I just
2: can't take it now so
1: no I know and considering last week I professed I was a huge fan of the show and I'm now finding it quite hard to take as well so that's whatever that says um I have to admit, I'm not enti- in terms of what earth, what on earth has happened. I'm not entirely sure that it has, quote unquote, you know, made Matt Hancock that this, this recovery and rebranding has been successful, despite what's being said. I know um, Nadine Dorries was saying actually he's doing really well and she eats her words and, you know, while Matt Hancock eats other things. <laughs> um, and so, yes, OK, quote unquote, he's doing well in the jungle in terms of you know he's going in there winning the stars winning the food winning more than when other campmates were voted to do so but it's just not doing it and as ever with this program it's about you know what he's what he's saying in the in the camp and what you learn about them and this that and the other and we haven't really heard much about this supposed dyslexia program that he wants to advertise. Um, he, You know, in relation to breaking his social distance guidelines, there were some very weird chats about, well, they weren't rules, they were guidelines, and it just got a bit tedious. And then he said he messed up, but he fessed up, and I just didn't really need to hear the rhyming of that either. There was some very awkward dancing that I, again, really was quite happy to be left in the dark with. Um, he then, it. I know Clarke, our very own Blani Hanela said this last week and the week before when we started talking about it, but it is getting a bit weird for me, almost like not Black Mirror-esque, but, you know, the Truman Show where you're thinking, is this actually what I'm watching? Because then he got voted to be the sort of camp leader and to decide who does what, chores X, Y and Z. Um, and he was voted by the public to be the leader. I mean, there's this metaphors, of you know, are plenty here and that have, you know, seem ridiculously ironic. Curiously, it's the same sort of general public who then made um, over a thousand Ofcom complaints about, you know, the same sort of episodes. So, you know, we, maybe we can't be pleased. But I just do think that that kind of sums it up. And I've been thinking a lot about this on Try How I Feel, because I do feel much more conflicted about it than I did last week. And we can quite easily play into this narrative and further solidify this thing that it's, you know, as Mitch Ben wrote um, in his sort of satire column this week, that it's made it the Matt Hancock show. And I still don't really think, you know, I still don't think that Matt Hancock's doing himself any favours. And to be honest, I think, in fact, we're even doing him some by talking about it. And in his quest for redemption and, you know, now relevancy, I think, sadly, like, the the best thing we can just do is to not give him the airtime on it.
2: Let us let us never mention the name of Hat Mancock again. Um, Now, I mean, I've had to turn off I'm a celebrity. I won't be watching the World Cup. Um, I am forced to watch Brexit going wrong <laughs> on a daily basis as the editor of The New European, and, mm-hmm. and so are you two uh, to, with me. I mean, Matt, there there have been, it feels, every week now feels like the week that Brexit uh, broke. And there have been some fairly significant developments this week. I don't know, you know, the sound of pennies dropping, chickens coming home to roost. All of that. What what's what's happened this week that's really caught your eye? In what I think is now the slow death of Brexit.
3: Yeah, it's been another big week, and Brexit is all going terribly well. Uh, well, well, start off. A new poll published just today has shown public support for Brexit has reached an all-time low. Uh, the survey from YouGov revealing only thirty-two percent of Britons believe it was right to leave, and fifty-six percent think it was wrong. The number of actual Brexiteers who believe Brexit was the wrong thing to do has soared from 4% to 19%. So that's all good. Uh, London has just lost its position as Europe's most valued stock market to Paris, partly as a result of Brexit. The London Stock Exchange was worth about $1.4 trillion, more than its Parisian rival, prior to the Brexit vote. So at least Boris Johnson has achieved his levelling up goal of moving money out of London, even if he didn't mean to Paris. Conservative peer and prominent Brexiteer Simon Wolfson, the chief executive of NEXT, has criticised his own government for refusing to make it easier to allow foreign workers into the UK, seeing this is not the Brexit I wanted. Most people in the UK have a very pragmatic view of immigration, he said, having apparently not paid any attention to the campaign he himself supported so enthusiastically. Um, Michael Saunders, a former interest rate setter at the Bank of England, has said if we hadn't had Brexit, we probably wouldn't be talking about an austerity budget this week. Well, the actual current governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, has said Britain is suffering worse economic performance than its rivals because of Brexit and a start drop in the size of the workforce since the COVID pandemic. Although what would that pair know compared to, say, Andrew Bridgen and Marc Francois? Uh, and finally, George Eustace has had his say on the Australia trade deal. Now, I know Ellie's speaking about this later, but it's worth saying we were told one of the key benefits was that it would make it cheaper for us to import surfboards, which is the uh, the modern day equivalent of winning the speedboat on bullseye. You know, it's nice, I suppose, but it's not much use if you live in Birmingham, is it? It's
2: really not. Uh Wow. Also not much use in Birmingham or in any other part of the country, was the autumn statement that was delivered by Jeremy Hunt uh, on Thursday. Uh, What did he do wrong? What did he do right? Did he do anything right? Did he he even have to do some of it at all? Uh, To discuss all of that, I am joined by the writer and the new European columnist, Paul Mason. So... First impressions, then, of a a grim autumn statement. Well,
0: it is a grim autumn statement, but it could have been worse. If you think back what happened over the summer, the Conservatives, Liz Truss, came to power and smashed the world's confidence in the British government's ability to manage its public finances. And she and Kwasi Kwarteng did so by embarking on tax giveaways to the rich funded by borrowing money. and. The rest of the world said, hold on a minute, that's not in the rules. And so, I mean, they had a real near-death experience mm. in, in, in late September with the bond markets. We now know that, you know, the Bank of England confirmed, you know, several pension funds were on the brink of collapse. So they come to power and the Tory DNA tells them panic, OK, slash public spending, raise taxes. Um, even if it imposes a deep recession, you've got to restabilize the fiscal credibility. And so it was possible that going into this, that they would have done upfront spending cuts and created what we call a doom loop. So you get a recession, you get spending cuts, the spending cuts make the recession deeper and round and round you go. In Jeremy Hunt's speech, he actually referenced that problem. And he referenced it because we on the left and centre left, the economists and political activists I work with, have spent a month trying to warn about that problem. And so Hunt's actual autumn statement is not as bad as it could have been. What he's done, quite simply, is to, first of all, relax the government's own rules. Instead of trying to get debt down as a proportion of GDP in three years, they're going to they're try to get it down in five years. So it gives you more breathing space. The next thing they said is, instead of trying to get to balance the books, which is what they originally said they would try to do, and that's what their ideology tells them, balance the books like a household within three years, they've said borrowing must not go beyond 3% of GDP. That's a completely different rule. It gives you room to borrow. And guess what? Jeremy Hunt is borrowing for the next two years to avoid a deep recession. At the same time, He's going to cut real real people's real spending power by taking lots of money off them through tax. And then from 2024, if he's still around, he'll start radically cutting public spending. So that's the big picture.
2: Yes. I mean, it, whether he'll be around in 2024 to start well, yeah. radically cutting Steve public spending. worse,
0: spend. it, Rachel Reeves and Labour now have to... Rachel Reeves and Labour now have to live with that. They yeah. have to... They will pick up the pieces of all the all the easy stuff, raising windfall taxes, raising uh, income tax, raising capital gains tax is done over the next two to three years, leaving them with almost nothing that they could seriously do to fill the gap that will be there. What they could do and what people like me would advocate is you, you forget these kind of arbitrary fiscal rules. You set fiscal rules over the medium term that reflect the fact that this country is, ha, has an economy that isn't going to go bust anytime soon, has manageable debts, even at 100% of GDP. Most of the countries our size have bigger debts, and that's the way forward. But between now and then, what most people will feel is that their wages are being taken away by council tax, by income tax, by, if, if they're in that middle-class bracket, you know, capital gains tax, corporation tax for small business owners, $5 million Small business owners pay corporation tax, uh, so all of that is going to be is going to feel very frugal, very stingy. But what doesn't happen is you don't get big cuts in health, schools, and uh, council budgets until later in the decade.
2: Yes, which uh, which Labour would um, would have to do. I mean, is it a bit of an is it a bit of an admission that? they can't really do anything politically. Is it an admission of defeat in 2024 or January 2025, do you think?
0: I mean, judging from Jeremy Hunt's tone of voice, listen, large numbers of people, unlike us, vote consistently Conservative mm. because they don't like paying tax and they don't like the idea of the state telling them what they can and can't do and they don't like the idea that, Tax is a huge proportion of GDP and they quite like the small state. Uh, That's what conservatism has become since Margaret Thatcher. You know, uh, two or three generations of people, that's what they believe. So if you look at the pained expression on Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak's faces, it's because they can no longer do that. What we've ended up with, and The Economist is pointing this out, is the worst of both worlds. We've got a big state in terms of taking a lot of taxes and because of years of underfunding quite poor public services and mm. that the, the conservatives will be made to own that um for the next generation i think so it's not that they can't do anything they've done probably i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't have done this uh, you know i i think there's no need to uh fill a so-called fiscal black hole i don't even believe it exists it's a figment of the imaginations of right-wing economists but if you do believe in it then the way they filled it is to front load a bit of um, pain on the middle classes and back load a lot of pain on working class people. And I think that doing the the first, you know, pushing people on 125 K into 45 P tax band, taking quite a lot out of the allowances that you get on capital gains on inheritance tax, that's going to really annoy the Tory mass base. And so, you know, we, we, we can't extrapolate from a single event, but, you know, you've already got Reform UK, this kind of son of, Bre- son of UK yes. on seven or eight percent. And if they were to go now banging the drum of the small state, too much taxes, taxes going to, you know, people we don't like and we know who they don't like you know, everybody who isn't white, male, middle class. Uh, I think that might give quite a bit of impetus to to that politics so, but certainly, you know, the, the Tory front bench is in disarray. You know, it, it, Johnson, Johnson, oh, less, less than six months ago, Johnson was promising a future. Big state Toryism, mm. Dirigism, you know, uh, we will look after you. We'll put your arm around you. Trust comes in and says, no, we'll slash the state. We'll dash for growth by doing something ridiculous and stupid. And now they've got the kind of technocrats back in charge, doing technocratic things and give them their due. They haven't done the worst that they could have done. They have basically heeded the warning that they could have created a doom loop of recession and uh, and spending cuts. But there's no coherence anymore to conservatism. All forms of it have been tried. None of them work.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? There's, a hu- there's huge borrowing to, uh, uh, tied to this. And, of course, the highest um, tax taking, it, well, it's gone up from 40 years to 80 years, I think um let's let's just sort of unpick what you wrote about in advance of this in advance of this budget because you have you have mentioned it a couple of times and it's this idea that the the fiscal black hole is a is a a, it's a mirage and you talk about the the difference between running a household budget you know people like sunak and hunt talking about a maxed out credit card for the country Why, why when there is all of this chaos you know when inflation's at 41 year high and we've had the terrible mini budget which might have cost us 30 billion and the, 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 there's all the knock-on effects of covid and putin and of course of brexit surely there is the need to, to for financial restraint no well of
0: course there is and when you've had a, a, the trust quoting experience which destroyed credibility yeah and in markets but, um, Mark Carney, the ex-Bank of England governor, used to say, Britain, like Blanche Dubois in uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, it always relies on the kindness of strangers. We've got an economy that borrows a lot of money and a government that borrows a lot of money from outside. So, yes, you need to establish fiscal credibility. And nobody on, on the left side of economics is buying this idea. You can print your way, you print money and everything's fine. The so-called modern monetary theory. It, that's not um, a dominant idea. So, yes, you do need fiscal discipline. But the, the the argument that myself and other left economists were having for the last four weeks was against the rhetoric of the fiscal black hole, because it's only created by the rules. You know, the, Let's let's unpick it for the, for the listeners. Mm. A fiscal black hole isn't a deficit; it's the fact that you're running a deficit out of control, and you can't think of ways of eventually balancing the books over the middle, over the medium term. That's what they mean by a fiscal black hole. And what we said is, no, you're creating this with your ultra-tight rules. So what did they do? A, they they stepped away from the rhetoric of the fiscal black hole quite interesting, and the Max Stoke credit card. None of that is there. Mm. In, 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 And it won't be there. It cannot be there. If any Tory backbencher starts talking about it, you just refer them to the Chancellor's speech. They've abandoned that rhetoric. They also abandoned their rules. They're actually borrowing the next two or three years more than the Office for Budget Responsibility thought they would. In other words, they're softening the blow of the recession by borrowing. That is a sensible thing to do. Um, I still don't agree with the, the scale uh, of the tax rises that they're bringing in. And obviously I don't agree with the spending cuts that will eventually happen. But um, I think I, I talk regularly in indeed in real time during the chancellor's speech with a whole group of left economists who we've been fighting this argument, avoid the doom loop, stop talking about the max Dirk credit card, stop talking about the fiscal black hole. And I'm honestly, during the speech, there was a sort of virtual fist bump going on because we think we haven't won the argument with the, the FT and the Economist and the Daily Telegraph, but we've won it with enough people who write for those things to say, you might be right. You might actually be right. And if you think about it, here's why. Here, beyond logic, is why. The Tory party is fighting for its existence. When it loses power in 2024 or before that, I think it'll be out of power if we're lucky for more than a generation. Uh, If we're unlucky, maybe just for a generation. And they know that their only chance of clinging on to power is to soften the blow of the recession that's coming, which means borrowing money and heaping some pain onto the middle and upper classes. And they've had to do it. So that whole stuff about maxed out credit cards and fiscal black hole that was orthodoxy during the 2010s decade is no longer orthodoxy because they know politically it's going to kill them. That's my cynic's view of why. Mm. Whether we, I don't know whether we've won the argument, but they've, they've had to accept you can't do steep austerity up front. Uh, and I, I hope Labour labor will accept there's no need for the long tail of austerity that is predicted here because the only way we're going to get out of this loop of, of failure, well, the... One is to borrow to invest. And I think if you listen to Rachel Reeves's reply speech, that theme is there. Borrowing to invest is still Labour's trump card economically. The missing bit from what Labour is saying is about what's causing the weak fundamentals. And, and it, nobody will say it. It's Brexit. Um, Brexit, is the, the, it, Brexit plus a, a decade of austerity uh, is, is the problem. I mean, he
2: did say the word growth but there, was, there seemed to me to be precious little in there that was about growth or that,
0: that, no, would, no. that would generate well, what, growth. Yeah, what, what they're doing, all, they said, look, we're not going uh, to slash investment up front, but they are really cutting it in the long term. Yes. Public investment grows a bit for the next couple of years and then it tails off. Um, there's two theories of growth. One was the Liz Trust theory slash the state, and the private sector will lead us out of growth. The co- wealth will trickle down. And there's the, let's call it what it is, it's the Rachel Reeves theory, which says, if I borrow £28 billion a year for a decade and invest it in offshore, onshore wind, solar, nuclear, railways, charging points for electronic vehicles, and retrofitting housing, I can rekindle a growth dynamic that then becomes self-reinforcing. Mm-hmm. Um, That is what Labour is saying. And so there's a clear uh, ideological divide between the actual real ideological Tories, Trust, Quarteng, uh, the ERG group, uh, the Priti Patel who signed this letter. They're saying, you know, we won't vote for for this budget unless you slash HS2 and all that uh, uh, ultra-right-wing stuff. And then Labour's investment-led green growth project it isn't the Green New Deal that the left wanted, but it is coherent and it will work. And so that's the argument. And in the middle, you've got the, the rump Tory government saying, we'll do a bit of both. Hmm. I just think that's the, pol- the politics of this means they're, they're on a doom scenario in the next election because all that's going to happen is that we won't get a, a, a desperately bad recession. And remember, all of these um, predictions are all on a knife edge, two or three variables have to go slightly wrong, and they miss their targets completely, and then they're back into the world of going into a, an election promising spending cuts, more severe spending cuts. So I think the politics are actually more interesting in some ways than the economics of, of today. Hmm. I, as long as Labour sticks to investment-led green growth and you don't get any kind of Blairite or Mandelsonite backlash that says we must obey everything the Tories have just uh, predicted we have to do. I think Labour can tell a very convincing and coherent coherent story to voters in the next 18 to 24 months.
2: Now, I mean, Rishi Sunak's people have been billing this as the week that he, his premiership really started. And you could understand that after the terrible first few weeks of his Premiership. He's been, been at the G20. He is his autumn statement. It's a, it's a bit, it's not quite what we expected. Um, it, has he done enough, do you think, first of all, to, to, to quell the, the people, you know, Reese Mogg, Patel, but Esther McVeigh was the, the first to stand up yeah. wasn't, and say, you know, if there are big tax rises in here, we won't be voting for this?
0: You know what? I still haven't noticed, Sunak. It's bizarre. Mm. Maybe it's just me um, that. You know in music we have this sign it's like a it's like a sort of an opened up uh, hairpin called a diminuendo you know when 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 you get quieter and quieter and quieter and since johnson you know johnson was effectively silenced by you know his semi overthrow in in june and then he he lived a kind of zombie experience johnson lived several weeks two months as a kind of zombie prime minister then you got truss who was the human hand grenade but you know never quite communicated with the public and now we've got Sunak and to me he isn't communicating because he's got no story or narrative to Mm. communicate. Um he's obviously reluctant about the Ukraine conflict. Uh you know there's plenty of voices in Washington as well that are saying come on lads get it all sorted let's have a peace deal and you can tell you know if you're attuned as I am to the language of the the diplomacy over Ukraine the way Sunak is communicating the UK's position on it very much puts him on I wish that the, the kind of I wish this were all over although unlike Johnson who relished the conflict and and yet he's had to come to the Commons with one of the you know weakest and least consequential budgets in the sense of consequential for their own ideology the budget does not in any way reinforce conservative ideology and he isn't quite in control of the Conservative Party in Parliament and you can tell that Johnson is angling for a comeback. So, no, I don't think next premiership has taken off. What, what, premierships take off with events, reactions to events. And, and I don't think he has the instinct to react either. He's, if you look at his career, it's a hedge fund guy who went to Stanford and then, you know, lucked out and married someone really rich and then Ooh. lucked out, got given an ultra-safe Tory seat, hyper-promoted because he, you know, he looked good, he looked like he was of that, technocratic ilk. But, you know, as we find out with Elon Musk, people with that background don't necessarily know how to do anything. I mean, Sunak, as we famously know, doesn't know the difference between an infrared scanner of a barcode and the machine you pay on at the supermarket. You know, maybe that's not his fault because he's had such a, a coddled upbringing. Uh, but, you know, you have to live in the real world to be a politician. You really do. And, and you know, the road
2: ahead for him now is is um, it's is very hard, isn't it? I mean, it's it's extreme, It's harder for the rest of us, obviously, um, because we're the one who the ones who are really going to be coping with this, uh, with this drop in um, household income and with rising energy bills and uh, and stuff like that. Do you what, what do you think that the reaction of the Tory press, who normally respond to conservative budgets by hailing them as you know the the, the greatest thing ever, as Kwasi Kwarteng's disastrous budget was, what
0: are they going to say about this? It's interesting that, because um, all they can say is um, they've given it their best shot to stay in power. Mm. You know, uh, he might save the Tory government. And if you think about it, that's become the overriding uh, mission of conservatism. You know, it's simply to stay in power in order to go on enriching. You know, there might be increases in in tax rates for people earning £125,000 a year. But, you know, soon that... You know, on paper, must be earning, you know, four or five times that into his, into his, uh, into his, uh, blind trust with his family. So, people on people on that, the super rich, won't even notice today. Yeah, they can say, at least we've done our best, we've given it our best shot to stay in power. What they can't say is, this is a, a, a a blood red, a blood red, or not, I'm wrong, wrong metaphor. This is a true (laughs) blue Tory. Uh, budget. It isn't. It's a set of compromises, uh, and it's a political trap for Labour. You know, by backloading the the spending cuts until after the next election. I think what I hope is, I mean, I don't care what the Daily Mail and the Daily Express say, but what I hope is we we're, we might we might be at the beginning of the moment where British conservatism realizes that this mixture of high inequality, continued austerity, semi-corruption or outright corruption, doesn't work. Mm. And the Brexit, you know, all forms of Brexit have been tried. Hard Brexit with a big state, hard Brexit with a small state, and now hard Brexit with a kind of something in the middle. I hope they come to the conclusion that the thing that's killing the fundamentals of the British economy is Brexit and inequality. And it would it would be logical for a form of conservatism to arise that said, we're going to live with a big state. We're going to live with the green transition and we therefore accept the need to borrow to do it. We're going to live with solar power instead of trying to kill solar power. And we're going to stop talking about, you know, uh, the heroism of food banks and just do what something like Har- Harold Macmillan did in the 1930s. Macmillan evolved a critique of capitalism. He, he evolved a set of ideas within conservatism that said, you know, this isn't working. It's not delivering. It's delivering social unrest and national decline. Therefore, we go for the big state and we go for the welfare state. Th- those two ideas are not unconservative. The problem is they've become anathema to conservatism it, since Thatcher. Uh, and and I, I, I just hope that the kind of ideological zombification of what I call neoliberalism The neoliberal form of conservatism, which relies on ultra market forces, high inequality, and then nationalism, Brexit. If you if you started again and said, let's reorganize, let's reorientate to Europe. Let's accept the state is going to be large and think about the way in which we can maximize its impact socially and economically. And that that inequality is killing our country. You could you could evolve a form of conservatism from those uh, premises but there's nobody around who, who can because Johnson purged yes. all the Europhile wets.
2: Incre- it's an incredible state of affairs that they have, uh, it's a, what a corner they have backed them. they've painted themselves into. You cannot admit that you are wrong about this. You can't admit that it's doing any damage at all. Um, and therefore you can't even begin to fix it because we have you on so rarely. I just wanted to talk <laughs> to about a couple of things that uh, very briefly that you haven't written about for us. Um, much happier topics after after the autumn statement. One of them is the return of Donald Trump, and the other one is the, the is the the World Cup. Which, <laughs> you know, in normal terms, like in normal times that like, the World Cup would bring joy at a time of the return of Donald Trump and the autumn statement. And it's and it's bringing you know misery, really, isn't it?
0: I mean, the World Cup could could be. Remember, you know, a series of technocratic and corrupt decisions were taken to put that world cup in qatar and then for qatar to more or less destroy you know large parts of its own natural environment to build a bunch of totally pointless never to be used again stadia Mm -hmm. in which at the moment right now in the stage of the tournament a lot of the fans are um, local um, migrant workers good luck to them. It's great to see them on the terraces. But in other words, it's giving the impression that even the fans have been manufactured. I think most of the teams are expressing disgust over the human rights, disgust over the human rights record of, uh, of Qatar, Qatar, and also unease over the sheer level of, of waste that is going on around them. And There'll be very little atmosphere in the early stages because Fans won't travel until it gets serious. And even then, you know, if you think about the average British fan, not only have they just seen their living standards knocked by 10%, yes. and their fuel bills go from 1,000 to more like 3,000 in a year, they've just heard Rishi Sunak say, by the way, you know, your income tax is going up, your national insurance is going up, your council tax is going up. What, what I just think the, the, the danger is not that the World Cup, Cup is a damp squib, it's already going to be a damp script. The danger is that it becomes a real sort of symbolic and existential moment that, that, that sort of illustrates to everybody the pointlessness of the economic model that we've, that we've adopted. It's like as if, as if everybody on Instagram and all the kind of influencers on TikTok suddenly looked into the mirror and said, my God, what I'm doing is pointless. Could actually happen to, you know, large numbers of rich football players at once
2: yes it's it, this is this is true hard to hard to start a chant with that idea um but and the other and then that I mean the, returning to, to Trump as well uh which is the week other sort of amazing news um it, it's it's funny isn't it if Boris Johnson had had, had run for had entered the race against Rishi Sunak and, and Petty Morden. I think it's fairly fairly clear that if it had gone to the members, Boris Johnson would have won. Um, yeah, and yeah. I think it's probably the, the same about Donald Trump, isn't it? All of the all of the opinion polls, when you ask ordinary voters uh, who they who they would vote for as a Republican candidate, uh, are you know Ron DeSantis is beginning to run away with
0: it. But when you ask people who are registered Republicans, people who will yeah. vote, it's Donald Trump. Well, this is the price that the uh, Republican Party is paying for allowing Trump and not just Trump, but a bunch of insurrectionary far right people to set their agenda over the last two years. Um, they've paid the price by you know, not winning, not not overwhelmingly winning, certainly the midterms. Uh, and so, yes, it's great news that right wing republicanism is in crisis. Um, I hope Donald Trump does carry on because, you know, uh, trying to fight for that presidency, because the, the, he now, you know, will face a series of worsening legal situations. Obviously, uh, even, even across the pond, we don't want to talk, we don't want to say anything about cases that are sub judice. but there, are, there is a rising uh, legal case against Trump, both around January the 6th and around his own company, mm. um, and about, around, this is the one to watch, the attempt... To overturn the particular result in Georgia yes. all of those legal cases I think will crowd in on Trump over the next six months. I see his his declaration as very much an attempt to uh, ensure himself and insulate himself against those legal uh, threats um, i it 's impossible to predict the future because it 's impossible to predict the humiliations and chaos that America will inflict on itself over the next two years, you know, the mass shootings, the severe poverty, the, 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 the high level of cultural um, dissonance. You know, in other words, what drove Trump to the extremes during his presidency, I am convinced, is the radicalization of white racists over Black Lives Matter. And although Black Lives Matter had been around for a couple of years before the death of George Floyd, it was the George Floyd incident, the George Floyd murder that that triggered those the, the, the wave of protest, triggered the wave of you know armed reaction on the streets. Then you got COVID. And so you got this spiral of radicalization. We cannot predict that there won't be another spiral of radicalization. And therefore, I, you know, it's the onus is now on the American Democrats to find a candidate that isn't Joe Biden, in my view, that is. Someone who moves to the next generation, probably somebody you can speak to are Midwestern blue collar men, because that's who isn't voting for the Democrats, uh, typically also to Hispanic men uh, and some black men. There's a there's a, a job of work to be done if we don't want America to spiral into a, a kind of far right fascism uh, doom loop uh, that involves changing the way the Democrats appeal both to their mass base working class, young, and ethnically diverse, and to people who want to vote for Trump because, you know, that 10 million extra that Trump got in the last election, large numbers of them were Hispanic. And Mm. so unless the Democrats find somebody who's able to, with a bit of pizzazz and youth and expertise and communicative ability, because that's the other problem. Joe Biden, in a way, has proved his own greatness by coming through this. But as a communicator, he's not. Um, he's no longer got that communicative ability. And it, that will only get worse. Um, so I think they need to find something new. They need to find a set of slogans and agendas that, that restore the idea of America as a great country. Um, Biden's done a bit of it with the, you know, we'll cure cancer, we'll send people to Mars, all that kind of stuff. But that's got to be backfilled with real stuff. Otherwise, the only dreams are the Elon Musk dream, you know, the kind of super rich, off-worlding, seasteading dream or the, the, the Donald Trump dream, which is of a, a kind of ethnic supremacy. Um, so the Democrats need to find the dream weaver, really, for the next
2: Uh, Our thanks to Paul Mason. uh, To read Paul Mason every week, Uh, subscribe to The New European. Uh, If you subscribe to our print and digital package, you will not only get the newspaper delivered uh, to your uh, door every week, but you will also get access to all Paul's archive of pieces for The New European. For a special deal for podcast listeners, you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash TNE podcast. Uh, thank you again, Paul Mason. Now I'm rejoined by uh, Ellie Longman Rood and Matt Withers for the Hall of Shame, the home for malignant ministers, uh, bogus backbenchers, poisonous pundits, all of that. I will start, uh, as I always do, with the world's worst column in the world's worst newspaper, Anne Whiddicombe in the Daily Express. Uh, not much time for Anne this week, um, but Anne Whiddicombe writes, uh, this week, this is a real thing that Anne Whedicken has written. It is impossible to imagine Margaret Thatcher announcing in the press that she had had a boob job. Um, I can't. I mean, thank thank God uh, for that. Um, but thanks, don't, no thanks to Anne for putting that uh, in my mind. Uh, Ellie, who have you got in the Hall of Shame this week?
1: Well, I would just like to say thanks to you, Steve, for now putting that in my mind. Because yes, that's. I mean, it's
2: yeah. It, she says it's impossible to imagine. Uh, her announcing it in the press, it is. But now I've got the idea of Margaret Thatcher having a boob job in my head, uh, which I never really hoped for. So,
1: No, one I never really hoped for either, but there you go. Yeah. Um, so first up for me in the Hall of this oh, hall of Shame this week is Nigel Farage. Hooray! Hooray! Um, last night on his show on GB News, modestly titled Farage, he took aim at uh, President Zelensky In response to um, what's been going on this week and the missile that landed in NATO member Poland, which killed two civilians, he starts his segment by saying, now, what is certain is that if Putin had not been raining missiles down on parts of Western Ukraine, none of this would have happened. That is absolutely certain. Okay, fine. He then proceeds to criticise Zelensky. Uh, He claimed that he jumped the gun in a very, very, very dangerous way before asking, and naming the segment this, Do we really wholly trust Zelensky? Uh, The manner in which Farage, I know it's unbelievable. The manner in which Farage appears to continuously present himself as a man with vast insights into very complicated international affairs and who is then also the epitome of trustworthiness himself is quite bizarre to me. Um, The real question should probably be, do we really wholly trust Nigel Farage? Of course, the answer to which is no. Um, and it's also quite interesting to mention that this comes in the same week he uploaded a video to YouTube entitled Important Update from Nigel Farage on the Migrant Emergency. Ah, yes, another a subject that I'm sure we'll all be running to Farage for his expertise on.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh,
2: um, that's trailed George Eustace.
1: Uh, yeah, joining him is indeed George Eustace. So this week, the former minister branded the, you know, as Matt mentioned, the Australian trade deal a failure in a brutal swipe at Liz Truss and, you know, some severe backtracking. Um, naturally, it was the very deal that Boris Johnson said showed global Britain's its very best. Uh, and of course, the one that he negotiated alongside Truss during his time as Environment Sec. And he said in the Commons, since I now enjoy the freedom of the backbenches, I no longer have to put such a positive gloss on what was agreed. Now, again, I know I've quoted Clara already, but that very logic implies that, as she said in a meeting with us earlier this week, that very logic implies that if you're then on the front benches in the government, you lie, which I know isn't, you know, a total reach in today's politics. But really, like, the fact that you're now in the back benches, you can just completely say what you've just been working on is actually a complete and utter failure and a letdown to the people you were trying to fight for and represent. Um, Eustace, of course, unlike Trust was a, was a or is an avid brexiteer. So as we approach Christmas and the festive season, clearly it's time for those brexit turkeys to really come on home to roost.
2: And Matt withers, you have got uh, news of a, a tearful departure I believe and an exciting new literary work is this is this true?
3: It is it is Although for that I think I saw Margaret Thatcher's boob job supporting gay dad at the Sheffield lead Mill in 1999 um but my first inductee into the uh, hall of shame this week is Nadine Dorries who having left the cabinet is writing another book oh, although yours. it's, uh,
2: it's, it's feared not... it would happen
3: <laughs> it's not another novel set in a cartoon version of 1950s liverpool uh, it's an account of her idol's downfall entitled the political assassination of boris Johnston. Uh, Piers Blofeld, who is the um, James Bond villain-sounding literary agent, has said that the book would describe the murder on the Downing Street Express. Except, of course, Johnson wasn't assassinated by anyone. He committed political suicide. And my second inductee is broadcaster and Muppet Baby Brexiteer Darren Grimes, who... Having recently mocked reports he was getting the push from GB News, this week confirmed he'd got the push from GB News. Grimes tweeted, Thank you to everyone that has tuned in and supported me and the channel. The most crucial broadcasting revolution of my lifetime. Which, given that Grimes was born in 1993, means he believes GB News to be more important and Channel 5, Digital TV, High Definition, Netflix, Big Brother, The Office, The Wire and the time that Guy Gomer was accidentally interviewed live on BBC News about a trademark dispute.
2: Well, I mean, Guy Goma, surely trademark minister to, uh, to, 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 to come, you know, in the next two years. Uh, that is a tremendous, uh, a tremendous four entries there. Thank you. Very much for the hall of, uh, for those in the hall of shame, and and I wanted to end by putting Jeremy Hunt in into the the hall of shame. Um, as I watched his awesome statement, I mean it's it's quite common, isn't it? I, I can't I can't count the number of chancellors uh, who I've heard saying uh, that they will turn Britain into the new Silicon Valley. Uh, but Jeremy Hunt did it, and he said he would do it um, by using our Brexit freedoms. Um, which, I I mean, it's incredible. And I wondered what Brexit freedoms those were. The the freedoms have the worst predicted decline in GDP of any European country in 2023. The freedom to completely tank British exports, the freedom to tank the pound making goods more expensive, uh, the freedom to take a hit on productivity of 4% a year, the OBR said Brexit has cost us. And, And, you know, the hit that COVID cost us, Uh, is a reduction in productivity of 2% a year. And those are the freedoms that Brexit has given to the economy, Uh, the Brexit freedoms that Jeremy Hunt was talking about. Um, And Paul Mason was talking earlier about fake fiscal black holes, but the real fiscal black hole is the black hole created by Brexit. And Jeremy Hunt uh, and Rishi Sunak can make all the statements that they like, but the only statement that really matters is this statement, and it's, the, it's time to think again about Brexit. So that was the New European podcast. Thank you so much to Eleanor Longman-Rood. Goodbye, Ellie. Bye, Steve. And to Matt Withers. Bye-bye. Uh, and thank you for listening. And thank you to our ace producer, uh, John Daking. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers. If you go to the New European podcast, uh dot slash tne podcast it is one pound a week for digital or two pounds a week for the print and digital uh that offer is at the new european.co.uk slash tne podcast uh if you don't want to miss an episode of this podcast and why the hell would you please subscribe and where you can leave us uh nice reviews and uh big star ratings wherever your podcast provider allows Uh, You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Sanglesey. Uh, So all that's left to say is for another week, so long, snowflakes.